Good to have each and every one of you here. We're continuing our teaching series, The Stories We Tell, this week. And last week, we saw that the more we come to know and understand what God has done in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, the more we will love each other, the more our hearts will be encouraged, and the more we'll have what Paul called last week in our reading, full assurance of faith, meaning uh, the, the joy, the peace, the settledness that comes in recognizing what's really happened in Jesus uh, will be ours. We also said last week, if you were here, that there are plausible stories being told in the world and in our own hearts and minds as well that create confusion and that draw us away from the love of God. And we said that the best way to spot a fake is to know the real thing as well as you possibly can. And that's what we're going to try to do in this teaching series. So this morning we're turning our attention to the subject of redemption, okay? Redemption, this, uh, the way, this is my one-sentence definition, is reden redemption is to secure the release or recovery of persons or things, not just as they were, but to something far greater by payment of a price. Okay, that was a long, long definition for a one million points. Anyone think they can repeat it verbatim? No? Okay. Redemption is the recovery of people or things, not just to what they were, but to something far, far greater by the payment of a price. In everyday language, we might talk about a, an athlete, you know, who's just had a lackluster game and then he catches the winning touchdown and we would say he's totally redeemed himself, right? Or a student who uh, has been struggling and struggling all semester and turning in C plus work or something like that. And then they ace the final, it pushes them over the top to an A for the course. They would say that that exam was my final redemption or something like that. The, the idea is just that something happened, has happened that is so great that all of the heartache and all the mistakes and all the failures leading to that are now forgotten. And not only forgotten, but are actually a part of this redemption story now that make it all that much greater. You know what I mean? So one uh, quick redemption story, and I can't always remember what stories I've told you before. I apologize for that. But uh, eighth grade, for me, was a year badly in need of redemption. I would say that eighth grade was probably the low point of my life uh, as far as I know. I, you know, we've had some rough years here in the last two years, but eighth grade for me was absolutely the pits. Are there any eighth graders here this morning? Bless you, bless you, bless you. Okay. Uh, I can't even really remember why, what the big deal was. Maybe it was just being in eighth grade. But uh, also in eighth grade, uh, my whole world revolved around basketball because I, I was young and dumb. And uh, the low point, so the low point of my low point was a game where I scored zero points. That had never happened to me. It never actually happened subsequent to that game either. But th there's one time, zero points, and I really thought life cannot get any worse than that. Th we're talking some serious first world problems here, okay? But, but that was, that's eighth grade, and that's life. And um, so one evening, we, actually it was the next game. This is, a this is a true story. This is not like a made-up pastor exaggeration. This is, everything I'm telling you is absolutely true. The next game was against our arch rival, the Almond Bancroft Eagles. <laughs> okay? <laughs> you know, the Almond Bancroft Eagles. They were the next town over. They were too good to bust into our school. They had their own school, you know, the whole deal. 
And uh, it, it's the kind of situation where when all season, all you train for really is to beat the Almond Bancroft Eagles. And that's, that's what you do, okay? We were losing by one point with time running out of the clock. My friend Sheldon gets fouled. He goes to the free throw line, misses his first free, free throw. But one of those dirty eagles crossed the line before you're supposed to. So he gets another shot, shoots again. This time, one of those dirty eagles is waving his hands. The ref calls unsportsmanlike conduct. He gets four free throws. We're down by one point. He misses all four. Okay, so not a great day for him, but this is my story, okay? <laughs> Through a, I don't remember everything that happened, but all of a sudden I find myself right at the top of the key with the basketball in my hand, and I just shoot, Kush. and my bench the bench clears just like in a movie. Bench clears and my friends are hugging me and it's like just like the greatest moment of my life. The next day, my math teacher, who I thought was so cute, is like, I saw that basket that you made. You know, just like the whole deal. I don't remember anything else about eighth grade. I don't know what happened. I don't know why it was such a terrible year, but I remember that shot. That's sort of what, in a stupid, silly way, that's what we're talking about. Redemption is when something comes along or happens that is so great and usually so unexpected that everything that's led up to it, all the pain, all the heartache, just kind of is forgotten. Not just forgotten. It's actually brought into the story and it's what makes the story greater. A, a healed marriage or a friendship has its own particular kind of beauty, right? That, that the partners in that marriage or friendship would not lay aside even if they were given the option. If you've, re if, you know, if you've lost a child and years later you receive them back, not because they need anything from you, not just because they just genuinely have come to their senses and they return home, then you know that there's, a, there's just a particular kind of goodness and sweetness about redemption. Like a healthy family a healthy family is an amazing thing. But a family that's experienced redemption has heroes in it. Like for redemption to be redemption, there have to be heroes, people who faced into uncertain futures with faith and hope and perseverance and courage. So redemption is a mega theme of the Bible. Redemption is, the, is a thread that moves the whole story of the Bible along. It's the story of God receiving back something that was lost, not just as it was, but to something far, far greater by payment of a price. And to, look, to illustrate this, we're going to look really briefly at the story of Ruth today. We're, so if you would turn to Ruth with me, it'll be on page 222 in the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. We're not going to have a, uh, like a traditional scripture reading like we usually do here at Faith Community Church. We're just going to kind of dip into Ruth a little bit here and there. And then we're going to move all over the Bible. I think I have like tw 21 or 25 different scriptures uh, that we're going to read today. So I hope you're not feeling slighted by not having an official scripture reading. But The book of Ruth mentions redemption and redeemers more than any other book of the Bible except Isaiah. And Isaiah is 16 times longer. Okay, so that's cheating. Ruth takes the, the cake. Four chapters. 
and all about redemption and redeemers. And the first thing that we learn about redemption just comes from knowing who Ruth is. So here's the first principle. In the Bible, there is no person or situation that is beyond redemption where there's a willingness to respond to God. In the Bible, there's no situation or person beyond God's redemption where there's a willingness to respond to God. And I can say that because of Ruth. She's an extremely unlikely hero. She's not a Jew. She didn't grow up with any of the spiritual advantages that the Jews had or that people who grow up in church today have. This week, uh, here at Faith Community Church, we had a WANA Awards night. Kids, did you get some awards this week? Okay, I'm glad you're super excited about that. Then we have, uh, we have our senior uh, celebration this week in our youth group. Kids, we just love you. We are so uh, proud of you and glad for you and just praying that God would help you to grow more and more in the knowledge of Jesus. Ruth had none of those advantages, though. And yet she's the hero of this story. She was a Moabite. That's Israel's neighbor and usually their enemy. Their chief deity was Chemosh who required child sacrifice from time to time to uh, appease his anger. So that's where Ruth grew up. I wonder what the Arowana program was like. She's in the Bible also, not, not because of people's faithfulness, but she's actually in the Bible because of people's faithlessness. Let me show you what I mean. So this is Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, page 222. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land of Israel, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahan and Kilion. We'll say more about this later, but what they did in leaving Israel was a super faithless thing. We'll say more about that in a minute. It goes on in verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilian died. Now, the law of Israel specifically prohibits people in Israel marrying outside of the nation. It's not a race thing. It's a religion thing. God knows that people who are married to people who don't love him are usually drawn away from him. It's the same today. So the, the fact is that Ruth never even should have been married to these people. She never should have been part of the family. Her, her marriage was sin. It was against the law of God. Please do not raise your hand. Anyone else married to someone you shouldn't have married? You cannot. <laughs> Just kidding. Anyone else here because of someone else's mistakes? Any of you have parents that you wish you could sit them, their 22-year-old selves down and say to them, this is a bad idea what you're about to do. Does anyone have parents or grandparents who in their 20s and 30s made all kinds of foolish decisions and then to solve them made more bad decisions and here you are? <laughs> That's Ruth's story. And so I get to say to you with authority, wherever you are, whatever's been done to you, whoever you are, 
There is no person or situation beyond the redemption of God. In fact, where there's a readiness to respond, he may make you the hero of the story. Now, we don't know how this happened, but Ruth came to the place where she says to her mother-in-law in verse 16, she says to her, after her husband has died, please don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live, and your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. So however you got here this morning, I get to say to you, because of Ruth, everyone here has a, has a decision to make about what they're going to do with the living God. One of the stories that we tell ourselves is that we are beyond being a hero at this point. Who we are, what we've become, where our lives are headed, you know, have been fixed for us by other people's decisions, by our own decisions when we were younger, by the circumstances of our birth, the circumstances of our adoption, our place in life, the things we've suffered. Our hero days are long gone. There's a lot of truth there. Actually, it's pretty good advice. Have you ever said to yourself or another person, you've got to let the past go. You can't let the past define you. That's not untrue, but it is also not the doctrine of redemption. The doctrine of redemption goes like this. I'm going to paraphrase 1 Timothy 1.15. The doctrine of redemption doesn't just say to you, well, you've got to let the past go. The past is the past. What's done is done, etc., etc. The doctrine of redemption goes further. It says to you, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you are the worst. <laughs> and he redeemed you and people like you and people like Ruth so that he might get to display his infinite patience, mercy, and love in your life. It isn't just that your past is what it is and you need to let it go. There is a God in heaven who rules over even your history, your family of origin, the circumstances of your birth or your adoption, God was doing something, telling a specific story, and it's called the story of redemption. So principle number one is that no person or situation is beyond God's redemption. Principle number two is that where there's always hope because redemption is about the glory of God. 1 Timothy 1.15 that I just paraphrased there, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and you are the worst. The very next verse, so that's, that's a man named Paul reflecting on his own history. And he did some awful things. Awful, awful things. And the very next verse, he breaks into this poem. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's the reason that there's always hope for your redemption and that of your family and your circumstance because redemption is about the, the glory and honor of God. Who isn't moved to give thanks to God when they see a family or a person experience redemption? I've told you before about my grandmother who for 50 years persevered in loving her husband and testifies that testified 
that months before his death, he finally and fully surrendered his life to Jesus. Well, God is honored in that. He's glorified in that. And that's why we never get to say it's too late. The ship has sailed. Ephesians 1.7 and some other verses. I'm just going to paraphrase a whole bunch of things today, okay? In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood to the praise of his glory. So we do not believe in fate. We do not believe that, that, you know, the outcomes of our lives are fixed by the circumstances of our birth, our adoption, our genetic dispositions, or the things we got ourselves entangled in. When we talk about being trapped and enslaved, which we're going to do in just a moment, we're not talking about fate. When we talk about God's sovereignty and redemption, we're not talking about fate. We also do not believe in karma. There's a lot of truth there. That there are consequences to the things that we do, absolutely. But we do not believe in karma. We believe in redemption. Because we believe in a personal, living, powerful God who wants to manifest his own glory in your redemption and that of those you love. So, with Ruth, as the story unfolds, she returns with Naomi to Bethlehem. Their situation is very precarious. This is an outsider, an immigrant, with no means to provide for herself, but she's brave and resourceful. She catches the eye of a man named Boaz, and it's Boaz that recognizes there is much more to Ruth than just a girl from Moab. It's Boaz, if you remember like two months ago, Boaz is the one who recognizes Ruth uh, is displaying the chesed, the steadfast love of God, and he uh, falls in love with her. They want to get married, but there's this legal matter of redemption that needs to be addressed. So let's go to chapter 4 really quickly. If you're brand, brand new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers offset, okay? Chapter 4, and this is what it says in verse 1. This, by the way, this story is 3,000 years old, so if you're feeling a little lost, just hang on, okay? We'll get there. Ruth 4.1, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I skip down to verse 13. And so Bo Boaz buys the land then, and it says, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth. And she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
And the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. If we go back to our definition of redemption real quick, redemption means to secure the release or recovery of persons or things. In verse 17, this is really interesting, the women of the neighborhood gave this child a name saying a son has been born to who? Naomi. How do you figure that? What's going on? Well, from Genesis all the way through the history books of the Old Testament, the land that was given to Israel was more than just a place to live. It was more than just an asset to grow crops on. And what we just read about is much more than a real estate transaction. The land is the place that God gave to Israel as a gift. It was their inheritance from him. It's the place he promised to live with them. It's the place he said that their relationship would unfold. It was the place he said he would bless them. Of all the elements of God's promise to Israel in the Old Testament, none is mentioned more than the land. Have you ever noticed that? There are whole chapters about how to divide up the land. And the point is that to lose your place in the land was to essentially lose your place among God's people. That's why land could not just be traded willy-nilly. It had to be kept in a family so that that family and their descendants would not lose their place among God's people. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's the gist of it. So when Naomi and Elimelech left the land to go to Moab for greener pastures, they were essentially leaving their relationship with God. That's why it was such a faithless thing to do. And now Naomi is in this weird limbo. She's returned to Israel because at least in Israel there are laws to provide for her. But she's not really one of the people anymore. She, she's forsaken the Lord. And it's not clear what her position is. She has to be redeemed. And that's us. We are Naomi. Now there were several laws in place to provide for that redemption. I'll just mention one. It's called the law of the kinsman redeemer that allowed for uh, extended family members within the same tribe to marry a widow so that she's provided for and she's returned to her place within the people of God. And then any children that she has receive that inheritance and the, the line is, and people are provided for. So Boaz uh, goes to the city gate, that's where business is conducted, he calls all the elders together and he finds Naomi's next closest living relative. We'll call him Mr. No Name because we don't get his name and he's a bum, he's not a bum, <laughs> he just doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He goes to him and says, hey, Naomi's about to sell her land, okay, this is so that she has money to feed herself. She's about to sell her land, and you're the next closest living relative. Do you want it? Well, it's a decent deal. Okay? He is going to have to cough up the cash, and then he'll have Naomi to feed and care for for the rest of her life, 
But as soon as she dies, he gets it all because her line is ended. So he's, you read the story. He says, yeah, I'll redeem that. And then Boaz plays his trump card. He says, oh, by the way, Ruth the Moabite comes with the deal so that you can marry her and that Elimelech's line might continue. And Mr. No Name says, oh, you know, I don't know that it's going to work out. Yeah, I've just, I just talked to my accountant, and um, it, it looks like it, th this wouldn't be a good idea. Why is that? Because if Ruth has a baby, he, he will have purchased the property. It's been fallow for 10 years, so he's got a, a huge investment in the property to clear it and make it productive again. If she has a baby, baby gets everything and he leaves with nothing. So, uh, so you know, whoop, whoop, I uh, can't do it, he says. And Boaz gets to step in and he marries Ruth. Why does he do it, by the way? Because he's in love with her. He loves her. And you've been, in, some of you have been in love. You know how stupid you get with your money when you're in love? And that's what Boaz does. Redemption is the, re is the recovery of persons or things by payment of a price. And they do have a child. And Boaz loses that whole investment. And guess what? Boaz don't care. The story of the Bible is the story of, of humanity wandering from God into a foreign land and needing to be brought home by a, rede by a redeemer. And Ruth, is re she's really just the faintest shadow of what has happened in Jesus. This is what the Bible says about who we are. I'm going to read this. This is from Romans chapter 3. This is a good summary. Romans chapter 3 quotes, I think, six or seven different Old Testament scriptures and says, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Genesis chapter 6 describes the natural human condition as one that is always seeking evil all the time. Isaiah 64, 6 describes even the good that we do as filthy rags. In other words, even when we're doing right, loving our grandmothers and building hospitals and feeding the poor, we do it for the wrong reasons. We don't do it for the honor of God, but actually to assert our independence from him. See, I love my grandmother. I don't need you. See, I'm feeding the poor. I don't need you. Ezekiel 36 describes us as people who by nature have hearts of stone. Ezekiel 37 describes us like a field of dry bones that only the Spirit of God could actually breathe life into. In John chapter 6, Jesus asserts that we are incapable of wanting or seeking God if left to our own devices. The book of Romans says we... We, our hearts turn away from God. We don't seek him. Our, our minds are darkened, so we can't think clearly. We can't see straight to do what's right. Romans chapter 6 says we're enslaved to sin. 
Romans chapter 6.23 says we're legally bound to the penalty of death. One more. Just th this, is the, this is a summary of our natural condition in Ephesians 2.1. It says you were dead in trespasses and sins. It does not say that you are spiritually sleepy. It does not say that you are spiritually sick. He does not say that you are mostly corrupted, but there's this little corner of your heart where you could still respond to God from. He says, you're dead. Dead things don't think. They can't reason. They can't repent. They can't pray. They can't do anything. They are trapped and lost and gone. To use the analogy of Naomi, she was completely helpless. And such are we. And the only way we'll get home is to be redeemed. I do not mean to say that we never, we never do anything good or that we're as bad as we can be. Nobody is as bad as they can be. I'm just saying that what the scripture teaches is that every part of us is tainted and corrupted by our fall. So our need is total. And that means that the payment or the redemption has to be total as well. Whenever the Bible talks about our redemption, it talks about the blood of a redeemer. So Boaz is just a very faint picture of what redemption actually is. He shelled out some money. Our redemption came at the cost of blood. This is, this is just a summary of the Bible's teaching. Jesus purchased us, bought us, redeemed us, and ransomed us by the blood. Now, some of you are graduating this month, and you're going to leave, and I promise, in the next few years, someone is going to tell you that the cross of Jesus was not about your sin. They're going to say that it was primarily about his victory over spiritual powers and authorities. And that is true. If we had kept reading Colossians chapter 2 last week, we would see that in the cross, Jesus defeated the spiritual powers and authorities. But even there, they're stripped of their power because the price of our redemption has been paid. And now they have, no more, they have nothing to wield over us anymore, nothing to threaten us with anymore. Others will try to tell you that the cross is mostly about setting a good example for us. They'll say this, this is to help us understand what sacrificial love looks like. Well, that's true. But that's not the whole story. If you jump in front of a moving, let's say I pull you aside, Tom, and I say, Tom, we're on a busy street, and I say, Tom, I love you so much, let me prove it to you, and I step in front of a moving bus. What does Tom say? That was stupid. There's, a, there's no sense in jumping in front of the bus unless Tom's in the way and I, and I rescue him and I get flattened. That's love. You're welcome, Tom. <laughs> Worst of all, someday you're going to be told that this understanding of the cross as redemption for sin is a throwback to an unenlightened barbaric past when the gods were bloodthirsty and demanded blood sacrifice. And you're going to be told that the cross is 
divine child abuse. And that's just wicked. Jesus was not a child. He knew what he was doing. And the whole arc of the story of the Bible points to the need for redemption by blood. We'll talk about why that is some more next week, I think. But the, the point is that redemption requires payment. And we owe our lives for what we've done. Let me share with you just a few scriptures to prepare you to graduate and face alternative theories of the cross. Here are just a few, and there are so many more. Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. Revelation 1.5. Jesus is the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood. 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed, purchased from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. In Acts 20 verse 28, the church is described as the church of God which Jesus purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. 1 Timothy 2.5 Jesus is the one who gave himself as a ransom for you. We could go on and on and on and on but there is no other way to understand the cross of Jesus unless payment had to be made. And if our need is total and it absolutely is then the payment must be total as well. So at his crucifixion It says that a tremendous darkness covered all the land around Jerusalem and Jesus cried out, he screamed in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not cry out, my my head, my head, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet. Oh, my friends, my friends, they've left me. In his betrayal, in his trial, in his beating, in his crucifixion, Jesus never raises his voice. It isn't until darkness covers the land and he is fighting for his last breaths that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I listened to a Tim Keller sermon this weekend where he points out that you know, there are two realities, the, the, the physical reality and the spiritual reality. We should not completely disconnect those. There's a lot of overlap, especially in you. You are the place where those two things overlap, but they're not identical either. And in, this, in heaven and hell, time is not experienced in the same way. So what Jesus was being plunged into, and this is very hard to describe, what Jesus was being plunged into is what Tim Keller calls an infinite suffering. Cast into darkness, separated from the one who loves him most, into a place with, where time is not a thing. Now, by infinite suffering, we do not mean that he is suffering right now. Does everybody understand that? So I don't know how to reconcile all that in my brain. That he was plunged. This is the way Tim Porter said it to me a minute ago. See, I'm going to throw you under the bus. You talk to me between services, you go under the bus. Okay. (laughs) He said, I would say it this way. The infinite one suffered for infinite sin. 
We should not imagine Jesus saying to himself on the cross, if I can just hold on, if I can just hold on for a few more hours, if I can just make it to Sunday. No. Our need is total. And if, we're, if, we're, if that's going to be paid for, the payment must be complete. It must be total as well. We're not talking about the blood of bulls or of goats or of sheep or of birds. We're not even talking about your blood. We're talking about the blood of Jesus. And it is sufficient. What did First Peter call it? The precious blood of Jesus is more than enough. Not just to redeem you, but all things. How many times does the New Testament talk about the redemption of all things? This is from Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands at his daily sacrifice offering repeatedly the same things over and over. They never take away sins. But when Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected, perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Our need is total and therefore his payment was also total. And therefore redemption must also be total. That cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a it's the beginning of Psalm 22. Okay, so if you're wondering what was going through Jesus' mind as he struggled for each breath, he was singing and saying Psalm 22 to his own heart. And that's how it begins, but this is how it ends. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to coming generations. They shall proclaim his righteousness to a people not even yet born, that he has done it. Redemption to be redemption has to be something that the Redeemer can look back on and say, I would do that again. That was worth it. And then this, this psalm, takes in all generations, past, present, and future. It takes in all of time. When Ephesians 1 talks about the redemption, it talks about the redemption of all things, stretching from before the foundations of the world until the end of time. Nothing is left untouched by the blood of Jesus. Revelation 21.5 says that he who is seated on the throne looked at what he had done and said, Behold, I am making all things new. So redemption is total. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to lift the curse of sin and death from every square inch of creation to renew and restore all things. And not just to some ethereal spiritual world, but the Bible promises a new creation. We are not, we've not been redeemed to float up into heaven as disembodied spiritual beings who are going to float around on clouds and play harps and sing church music forever. The promise is a new creation, a new heaven and earth where God will once again dwell with his people. Boaz redeemed, you know, 10 hectares of land. 
Christ has redeemed all of creation. The story of redemption ends with heaven coming to earth and we will reign with Christ, 2 Timothy says. And Satan and all the powers of evil will be overthrown. The resurrection of Jesus, the Bible says, is just the first taste. The first glimpse of what is coming to the whole creation. No more sickness, no more cancer, no more death, no more depression, no more Alzheimer's. Everything will be made new and everything will be that much sweeter for having endured the darkness. When I was not a dad, I never had bad dreams. And then we had kids. And I, be, I began, not, not all the time, but several times a year, I would experience night terrors. These horrific, horrific nightmares where I would be watching my children slowly crushed to death by something. And I'm screaming and I can't get to them and I wake up in a panic. I'm thrashing around in bed and sometimes I'm making noise. Sometimes when it's really bad, you know, I can't go back to sleep. But when it's really, really bad, and this has happened just a handful of times, I will actually run to their rooms just to touch them while they sleep. It's, it's like receiving them back from the dead. And it is that much, it's that much better because just for a moment I thought they were gone. Redemption is not redemption until it's not just to what it was, but something greater is coming than we can imagine, than we have ever known. Romans chapter 8 says that what is coming is going to, is going to surpass Everything you are enduring right now, to such a degree, you won't remember it anymore. Just like I can't remember eighth grade, except for this one thing. All the heartache, all the pain, all of the waiting, all the things that you're enduring now will be, will be so, so surpassed that you will, if you can imagine, you will look back and say, I would do it all again. I would do eighth grade all over again if I could just have it. Oh. But it's gone. This is what Romans chapter 8 says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, Will he not also graciously give us all things? Our need is total. His blood is more than sufficient. And therefore, our redemption will be total as well. So my question as we prepare to sing is what do you need today? What do you need from the Lord today? Do you need, you need faith? Okay, you're here today, you're 17 years old, you're struggling to believe. Ask him. You got a situation, you got a circumstance you can't make sense out of, you need patience, you need wisdom, you need perseverance, you need endurance. Will he not graciously give us all things? Won't he get us home? What do you need? I'm going to invite you right now before we sing. Would you just bow your heads?
And I want you to ask. I want you to give thanks for what we've just talked about, and I want you to ask for whatever you need. Father in heaven. Thank you for your word and for the blood of your son Jesus that has paid for all our sin. I ask that you would make it real to our hearts, that you would allow our hearts to see what you've done. God, would you make us people not, not of fate or karma or resignation? Make us people who trust and believe in your redemption. I ask that you would restore families and marriages today. That you would breathe life into relationships that seem nearly dead today. Give them the gift of faith. Father, we pray for our children, that the things they've learned in Awana this year, the things that they've learned in the youth group would carry them and carry them and carry them until they see you face to face. We pray for adult children who are wandering far from you today and ask that you would allow us to see your redemption. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.